Thank you so much, Brother Roger. You can be seated. Uh, Welcome to Cornerstone Baptist Church. We're glad you're here tonight. I'm sorry, I'm running a little bit behind. I had a premarital counseling session that went just a little bit long, but I appreciate your patience with me tonight and uh, excited to dive into God's Word together. Uh, We're going to look at Acts chapter 17 uh, tonight, and we're going to look at all really from verses 16 down to verse number 34, but I'm just going to, at this moment, read uh, for us verses 22 down to verse 34, and uh, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and his experience at Mars Hill. And after I read this, Brother Roger's going to lead us in one more song of worship, and then uh, we'll dive into our message. And if you came uh, preparing to give an offering tonight, the bags are down front, and after services are over, just come on up and, and drop it in there, and we'll make sure it gets where it's supposed to go. Beginning in verse 22 of Acts 17, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I receive that, or I perceive that in every way... You are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each and every one of us. For, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere, uh, uh, he says, to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some But others said, we will hear you again about this. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. And verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. And among them also were Dionysius, he says, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I've always found those words uh, interesting, that many mocked, but some there believed, and others said that they wanted to hear a little bit more. Let's, let's pray tonight. Father, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity you've given to us to gather in your presence, to open your word, to, uh, to look at what being a missionary at Mars Hill looked like for the Apostle Paul, to maybe perhaps glean a little bit of truth how we might understand this in our own context, in our own setting tonight. You've called each and every person in this room to be a missionary of the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You've called all of us to share the wondrous story of Jesus. How indeed you are approachable, you are relatable, you are near to man through the incarnation of your Son, through the giving of your Holy Spirit who indwells in our existence, our life. Father, you indeed are knowable today all because of the precious work of Christ on our behalf. What a great truth. We live in times much like these described here in the book of Acts, where men and women live in this world, consumed with nothing except knowing something new, hearing something different than they've heard before, 
but in their own ways, asking spiritual questions. They may not always seem spiritual on the onset. They may not always seem like they're searching. But man has shown over and over again in every generation that there's a longing in his heart, a hole, a vacuum that must be filled that only you can fill. And so in seasons like this, in times like this, may the message of the Apostle Paul ring true in our culture, in our hearts and minds, as we proclaim that Jesus Christ has come, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and been resurrected to the glorious praise of you. Father, may that that message ring true. And may we be uh, encouraged tonight, equipped tonight, to realize the culture we face, the challenges we face, and be intentional about leading others into a relationship with you. We love you and we give you the praise and thank you most of all for Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin. In his precious name we pray, amen. Let's turn to Acts 17, Acts 17. And again, we're going to look at most of the chapter, but we're going to pay special attention to verses 22 down to verse number 34. I hope you uh, planned on staying a long time tonight. Most of my messages, most of my teachings, uh, I, I have a, a page limit. I know exactly how long it takes to say a certain amount of things, right? And after uh, uh, 13 or 14 years of this, you get pretty accustomed to it. And uh, I will tell you that there are four extra pages tonight, all right? So I hope you're planning on staying a, a while. Uh, this has uh, been a good journey uh, for me as we've looked at the second half of the book of Acts and to the exploits of the Apostle Paul. hope it's been a good journey for you. I've actually preached on this passage before. I preached on it at a missions gathering several years ago, I believe all the way back in 2012. And I challenged some young missionaries to keep these things in mind. And then I preached on it again uh, in, in, in 2015. And so, uh, so uh, I... I just love this particular passage, and I, and I think there's some great truth for us tonight, and I'm, um, I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I do. And if not, uh, you have my permission that as soon as you drop some money in the offering bag, you can leave, okay? Acts 17, uh, and I want to speak on the subject matter of being a Mars Hill missionary in 2018, being a Mars Hill missionary in 2018. In Acts chapter 17, we find one of the greatest stories of missionary life, I believe, in all of the New Testament. It's a story uh, that I'm sure that everybody's familiar with. We've named churches after it. There's a Mars Hill Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington, as all of its campuses as well throughout the country. There's Mars Hill Baptist Church in, uh, in Springfield, Missouri. There was a Mars Hill Baptist Church near Effingham, Illinois, where I grew up. So it's a passage that we are pretty familiar with. And it, we even know most of the characters. It takes place between the Apostle Paul while he is in Athens or Greece at a little place that became known as Mars Hill for obvious reasons. And I want to relate to you this story tonight because as I think we work our way through this, I think you'll see with me there are many similarities between what we deal with in 2018, between what the Apostle Paul was dealing with all the way back in first century Greece. There's a little line that Luke gives to us in verse 21 that I think is so descriptive of the attitude in life in Athens, and you see if you can relate to this. He writes there in verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Think about that for a moment. Luke says that the atmosphere at Mars Hill, the atmosphere in this place, 
was, uh, was that the people sat around and essentially did nothing all day long except when it involved hearing or telling something new. It's a pretty illustrative think of, uh, a statement when you think about it. Basically, the people are pictured in this moment as, number one, lazy, and number two, occupied with vain conversations about nothing unless it happened to be a new nothing, right? And I, 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 I think that is so descriptive, of my, in my opinion, of today's culture that we live in, that you and I are currently saturated in. If you don't believe me, go on Facebook as soon as church is over. Uh, not, not during the sermon, but go on after church is over, and I think you will find this exact same attitude, culture, on full display. Many, many years ago, at the turn of the 19th century, there was a man that was born, a man that I'm certain that each and every one of you in this room are familiar with, and his name was Charles Robert Darwin. Charles Darwin would become famous uh, because he accepted a philosophy called naturalism. That is, that he accepted a grain of thought that all things in the world needed to be explained through natural means absent any type of supernatural existence. Now, he was inventive in this, not because he invented naturalism. Indeed, naturalism as a philosophy had existed for some 100 years long before Darwin ever came into the world. But what made Darwin so famous was that he took the philosophy of naturalism and he applied it to the natural world, the scientific basis, and he wanted to try to find a way to exclude or to get rid of the idea, the view of a sovereign God. The difference between he and scientists that existed before him was not so much in the philosophy, but in the practice most scientists before Darwin actually accepted the belief that a sovereign creator, you may call him by many, many different names, but that a sovereign creator had created the world. In fact, a sovereign God who had created the world was necessary, most scientists believe, for scientific discovery. Because without a sovereign creator, science wasn't repeatable. It's not possible. God was thought of in terms of being stable, holding the universe together so that things could be observed, hypothesized, and repeated as according to the scientific method. But Darwin, being raised into a new philosophy, rejected that notion. It was not that he rejected the existence of God. It was, the, it was that he found God to be an unnecessary component of studying the world. He basically said, it's not that I don't believe God exists, it's that God is not necessary in order for me to do this profession of science. He would develop a theory through scientific research, which would be later published under the name, you know it well, the origin of the species. His successors would take his theories and he would expand them for the next 150 years, bringing us to the time that we now live today. And what was that theory? Well, you know it. It is the belief that man has descended, and all of life for that matter, from single-celled organisms through a succession of changes called survival of the fittest until eventually you and I came into existence. You say, what in the world? Why have a discussion about evolution tonight and Charles Darwin when we are talking about missions work in Acts chapter 17? 
Well, my purpose tonight is not to lay out the arguments for or against. Instead, it is for you to understand where I want to go with this message. You must understand the effects, whether willingly or unwilling, this new theory that Darwin espoused and has been accepted into our schools, how it has produced new people in our society in a new age of thinking. The premises of naturalism that Darwin and others have espoused have changed not only the scientific community this evening, but it has changed all communities. The media community, it has changed our our, our views of finances and laws. It has changed everything about us. It is based on the premise that the world is not stable or consistent, but rather that all creation is evolving, including the human mind. And because they believe that the evolution is a good thing, the end of, uh, ending philosophy is that which is new is always better. Here's how it affects our media. Today we live in a world, because of evolution and naturalism and that type of philosophy, that says that in order for something to be good, better than something else, it must be newer than something else. It's infected our churches. In order for our music to be good, it must be newer than what was previously, right? It's infected our sermons. The sermon has to be newer than what was previously. The naturalism philosophy says that God is not necessary to the world, but what is necessary is always finding the most evolved product, Because that is what is best, whether it be an organism, a human, a political system, a religious worldview, which is why we now have democratic socialism. You fill in the band, what is new is always better. Find something different and that makes it better than what it was. Go back to Luke's statement again here in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That sounds just like our culture. A culture that believes that everything should be handed to them, that's laziness, and a culture who believes that God is not necessary, but rather what is new is always better. That's the Athenians. This evening, I submit to you uh, this story because... I want you to know that I believe tonight that the church has an obligation, a role to play, a voice to be spoken in this particular time and season in which we live. I shared with you that I shared this first message with some young missionaries before they went out to their assigned responsibilities in their mission fields. And one of the things I said to them as young men and women getting ready to embark on these great adventures was I said, I want you to know tonight that I believe in you. Beloved, I believe in you as well. I I don't care whether you're 20 tonight or 200. It doesn't really matter. I still believe in you. I believe that our voice matters. I believe that the gospel that was given to us in the message of Christ through the handed down by the apostles, the faith that has been delivered to us, still works. It doesn't have to be new to work. I believe that generations before us many times did not recognize the depth at which the culture was sinking into. They did not grasp how the philosophical thinking of the age, they did not understand the difficult questions being asked, and they rejected those questions being asked. They assumed a position of isolation, but today is the day as a church when we say we can no longer hide. We must confront this thinking. We must be willing 
to assume that the hard questions being asked by our society are worthy of our consideration. I submit to you this story because it is so similar to what we encounter in everyday life. Indeed, what you're going to encounter this week when you go to work. Indeed, what you're going to encounter if you serve on a mission trip to India or to New Jersey, southern New Jersey next year as we knock on doors and try to help Pastor Tim plant the church there. As you go about doing just regular everyday business, if you go prayer walking with Dr. Loggins, you are going to encounter this culture. And we must, as the beloved, redeemed people of God, have an answer for what we're about to face. What is that culture? Well, some of that culture is brought to us through a big word here tonight, globalization. The process of bringing many different cultures together. You, If you were to take a walk around Sedalia, you are going to confront people of different religions. Did you know that? You're going to confront people with different questions about life. You're going to confront people with different philosophies about what life is. You are going to find people that come from different uh, parts of the world. In my neighborhood alone of 84 homes, there are seven different major people groups identified. Just think about that. In Sedalia, Missouri, for some questions that that, that are, for some people, if you knock on their door, their questions about life are going to be about money. For others, it's about getting the least uh, or the most with the least amount of effort. effort. For others, it's about questions about how to get recognition at their jobs or their lives. For others, it's about religious things. But if you were to go knock on doors around Sedalia as you encounter all these different people with many different religions, many different questions, many different philosophies from many different countries, you're going to find out that they have one thing in common. They are all a part of the same broken world. No matter where they come from, no matter what their questions, we're all one as citizens of a broken world. The reality is that if we walked around and actually talked to folks and considered their questions, we would find that most of them are exactly like us. They are searching for real truth. In a weird way, the search for truth is what brought the Apostle Paul to Mars Hill on that day. The Athenians wanted truth and they wanted Paul to come and see if he had what they were searching for. Much like our society, their mindset of truth was beginning to shift. They wanted to hear something new. They wanted to believe that there was something absolute, that no matter how much the world changed around them, there existed a reality that was true regardless of one's nationality, race, or religion. You know, when I was growing up, the new thing was to believe in what they called postmodernism, and now it's post-postmodernism, and now it's neo-postmodernism, and they have a new term for it on an every weekly basis, it seems like. But in my growing up, we were told that the idea of absolute truth failed to exist. But the problem is that philosophy didn't work. And so with every succeeding generation, guess what we have to do? We have to come up with something new. The Athenians' desire for something new shows us that what they had was not sufficient. If you had what, if you, had what you needed, listen, you wouldn't need something new. This is not rocket science, right? The reason we're living in this culture, the reason we continue to see what we see is because what has been sold to us has not worked. One of my favorite testimonies about being here in this church for over nine years is about two years ago, uh, maybe three years ago now, we started reaching some Slavic families. And the first uh, family that came through the doors, uh, Kelly and I decided that we would like to uh, have uh, dinner with them. And so 
Our first idea was we would invite them over to our house for dinner, and then uh, uh, we were able to attend a uh, Russian wedding, and we saw all their food and their cooking, and Kelly said, I think it would be better if we took them out to eat. And uh, so we went out to eat, and we sat down around a table, and we talked about some things, and finally, midway through the dinner, I could not help but ask the question. I said, there are many Russian churches all over Sedalia. Why would you come to Cornerstone Baptist Church? What a sales pitch, right? Why are you here? Uh, This makes no sense. And I'll never forget one of their responses. Daniel turned and looked at me and he said, we wanted to know if what we believed was true. We wanted to know if what we believed was true. And what we found in our time at Cornerstone and over the last several months is that there can be real truth and you are declaring it. Beloved, we live in a time when people like the people of Athenia in this moment wanted to know what is true. They searched for something new because what had been sold in the past did not work. Listen, when we look at our culture today, I want you to understand that many of the questions being asked, though they may be wrong questions, though they may not be the right manner in which they are asked, are all a direct result of, at least in my experience, of a people who just don't know what is true and are trying to find it. That's why I'm so passionate about this particular story. The Athenians were looking for something. They had a vacuum that needed to be filled. The Apostle Paul started preaching and they thought to themselves, maybe he can fill up that vacuum. Maybe he can tell us what it was that we did not understand. They wanted to believe that there was something absolute that did not change over time. They wanted to believe that there was something that did not change because the culture or the politics changed. They wanted to believe that there was something that was long-lasting, that there was an anchor for the soul. In fact, in that moment, they said, we believe that the answer to that question might even be religious in nature. That may be a distinction between then and now. In today's particular climate, we want to throw out the religious answer. In fact, if you have a talk show and they have a panel and they bring in a, 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 a pastor and, and a, a scientist and a philosopher and all across the board, the first person you immediately exclude as having truth is always the pastor because absolutely, obviously, religion has nothing to do with the world's answers, right? But in their day, they said, wait a second, religion might play a fundamental role in defining what is truth. So as Paul comes through the city, he saw how religious the people were. He says in verses 22 and the first half of 23, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. The people of Athens knew that day that truth must come from something outside of themselves. They looked around and they said, you know, we as mere mortal men cannot define what truth is. If there's such a thing as morality, there must be a law. If there's a law, there must be a lawgiver. And if there's a lawgiver, that lawgiver must not be man, for this would assume uh, an ever-changing morality. Therefore, there must be a God, goes their logic. If there is such a thing as morality... Take away God, or if you take away God, the lawgiver, you lose the law. If you lose the law, then you lose morality. Lose morality, and you lose a civilization to corruption and chaos. So they said to themselves, There must be a God. There must be a spiritual answer to these difficult questions. 
Love in the culture that you and I now live in would like to convince us that people are no longer religious. That religion and God are only part of the mind, a part of the mind of the unevolved. Frederick Nietzsche wrote a parable in 1882 entitled The Madman. You've heard me quote parts of it before. In it, a madman is seen running through the town until he reaches the square where he is shouting, Where is God? I seek to find him. And the people around him laugh and scoff. Eventually, he told them that they had killed God and they were murderers of the supreme being. It was a picture Nietzsche was painting of the fulfillment of Darwin's science, eliminating the need for God himself. He tells the story of a madman running around proclaiming the death of God, and he concludes with the madman in the church saying, What after all are these churches now if they are not tombs and sepulchers of God? We're told in our culture that God is dead, that religion doesn't matter. And yet, the events of September the 11th, 2001, remind us that man has not bought this lie. Those men were very religious that carried out those terrorist events. They were fanatical and they were in need of psychiatric help, but they were religious. Just a few weeks ago, a man opened fire in a National Guard Center. Why? Because he was religious. He was wrong, but he was religious. This week, this yesterday morning, a, a madman opened fire in a Jewish synagogue because, are you ready? He was religious. He was wrong, but he was religious. What I'm saying to you tonight is don't buy what the culture is saying. The culture is saying that people have moved on from religion. They have moved on from the supernatural. They have moved on from God. But the culture has shown us over and over again that that is simply not true. People recognize the need for a supernatural being. The reality is seen through their actions and the fact that people are still in search of truth. They want to believe in something more. They will know that what the culture is offering to them is nothing more than a mirage of water in a dry and barren desert. They recognize that we have tried to do everything without God and there's still no peace. Now they may go to the wrong supernatural existences. They may go to the wrong holy works. But listen to me, man by his nature has been and will continue to always be religious, recognizing that there's a need for something greater than himself. The Athenians in Acts 17 had not believed in the one true God. That was why God had sent Paul there. They had not yet believed in the one true God. That is why they were always in search of something new. You see, if their heart had been satisfied with their religious questions, then there would have been no need for something new. The fact that they had built temples to all of these gods was a sign to Paul that the people were searching for something new. And here is a great distinction. In our culture, if we walked in, in fact, when we take folks to India and they walk around and they see the, the temples and the synagogues, when they see the Muslim mosque, they walk around and they're overcome at times with the grief and they go, how can people be led into such madness? But when Paul saw that, what he saw was a people who were searching for a supernatural existence but had not yet found it. There's two ways to look at those things. Not just those things, but many of the things that we see in our culture. There's two ways to look at it. We can say that the world has gone into utter chaos and throw it away. Or we can say, maybe, just maybe, their search, however deranged it may be, is an indication of a heart that is unsatisfied. And maybe, just maybe, I might have the answer to that heart question. 
They wanted to believe in something more. So they built up all these temples. It was a sign to Paul that they were searching for the right God, but had not yet found him. I submit to you this evening that people you and I encounter on a daily basis, whether it be at the counter of Walmart, whether it be serving in our job, whether it be knocking on doors as we go through community, the people whose homes that we walk into and pray with, listen to me, beloved, they feel the same pain that these Athenians felt in this moment. They've been left unsatisfied with what the world has sold them. But I want you to know, church, Cornerstone Baptist Church, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe that God can use us together for his own glory to give our culture, our city, the only thing that can satisfy thirsty souls. But in order to do that, whether it's doing a prayer walk or doing a program or whatever it is, we have to do it on a regular basis, not just on a mission trip, not just in 40 days of yes. We have to do it every day of our lives. We have to be willing to engage the culture and not run away from it. Paul can teach us about that in Acts 17. The story unfolds beginning in verse 22 that Paul was brought to the Areopagus where the people were gathered together in their searching. It was the center, the focal point of their discussions apparently there in Athens. Paul had been heard speaking and he was brought to see how what he had to offer measured up against the thought of the day. That would be my first point to you tonight. Beloved, you need to recognize that what you believe, if you're going to engage this culture in 2018, will be brought under scrutiny. If you're going to be a missionary in this city, if you're going to be a missionary in this culture, what you believe will not be accepted at face value. You will have to give reasonable defenses for why you believe what you believe. If you're going to be a willing participant in the kingdom of God and offer the gospel of Christ to others, people are going to question that. They're going to question your motives. They're not only going to question what you say, they're going to question why you're saying what you're saying. I remember when uh, I was reached out to and they asked if I would be willing to be a golf coach. I talked to some of the deacons and I talked to some of the, the key leadership in the church and I asked their thoughts. And along the way, the process as it unfolded, I said, you know, the one thing that I can see is an opportunity here to engage in the next generation, to engage with their families, families in our citizenship that I could hopefully love on and give some answers to maybe some of life's most pressing questions. So in agreement with leadership, we, I submitted my resume and was brought before the, stu the school board. And I remember there was one gentleman on the school board when reviewing the contract that had been offered to me said, why would a preacher want to do this? Do you plan on trying to convert the entire team? <laughs> if you're going to engage this culture, people are going to question your motives. They're going to question, bring under scrutiny the things that you believe. By the way, I believe uh, that doing the team baptism the week before the first practice might have been one step over the top, but they want to question, bring under scrutiny why it is that you say what you say, why you believe what you believe, why you would do what you do. And beloved, the reality is that even your best defense may not ever be enough. Sometimes you'll have deep conversations, theological conversations. And I've had them where you've had this moment where you thought, maybe finally I just pierced through the darkness. 
Maybe finally what I said did resonate, but then all of a sudden, it didn't. And instantaneously, it's gone. The reality is that you may even be questioned if you're going to engage in the kingdom work by your own family. I've got lost family members tonight. Lost cousins and aunts and uncles that they don't understand why I do what I do. And I'm not talking about being a pastor. I'm talking about simply sending a card on a birthday that says, hey, we were thinking of you. God bless. Be sure of this truth tonight that in our culture, you will be expected to give a defense for why you believe what you believe if you're going to do kingdom work. And I would submit to you tonight that this is, are you ready, a good thing. We should be questioned. Because when you and I and our faith is brought under scrutiny, I believe it challenges us in our faith. It challenges us to know more, to understand more. When the Athenians brought the Apostle Paul, they did so with their key leadership, their key teachers, those who were offering something different, and they thought, hey, there's an opportunity for a back and forth here. You know there's no greater detriment to the Christian witness than when they bring somebody on TV who has no idea what he's talking about and can't give a good defense? I cringe every time when I see it, right? Because they bring on some some Joe Schmo, right? They bring on Jason Grossart, and they say, Jason, give us a defense for why you believe what you believe. And he says, something crazy. No, obviously not. Jason would give a logical, clear defense. But you know what I'm talking about. And you go, man, that's not it at all. Why did you say that? That was dumb, Rick Warren, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Joel Osteen. Uh, But through that challenge, through that challenge, beloved, here's what I want you to see. When you get challenged, whether it's knocking on a door, whether it's doing the 40 days of yes, whether it's doing prayer walking, whatever it is, when you get challenged, listen, you know what happens, at least in my life? It forces me to open up my scriptures. And it forces me to find answers, to know the heart of God. So that the next time I'm able to articulate the greatness of Christ above every other system in the world. I think it's a good thing when we're questioned. Do not do, beloved, what generations before us have done and shrink away in fear of questions. We need to be a people who embrace them. Not in our own strength, not in our own intellect, and not in our own power. Remember, I said, sometimes the best answer you give will not be enough. We don't need to embrace our culture in our own strength, our own intellect, our own power. But rather we should embrace the questions and follow the command of 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. To always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And doing that will strengthen our faith and be a testimony to others. Are you ready of the reasonableness of accepting Christ? Did you know it's reasonable tonight to accept Christ? There is a logical reasonableness to it. To understand that God could not simply wipe away sin, but that a legal, judicial system must be in place by which God forgave sin through the slaughtering of his own son. It is reasonable tonight to believe in Christ. And as we testify of him to others, and as they question our motives and our faith, it challenges us to articulate that reasonableness. And by the way, when you do that, most of the time, you naturally articulate what is unreasonable about their particular worldview. 
Paul arrives at Oropagus and he turns the tables on his listeners. He tells them that he recognized they were a religious people and that they were so afraid of leaving out a God that they even built a temple. They actually built an altar to a God whom they did not know and whether or not he even existed. And he tells them that this is the God that he had come to proclaim. Verses 22 and verse 23. If you continue to follow the story into verse 28, he even quotes their own philosophers to them. What is he doing? My first point to you tonight is simply that we need to be willing and ready to embrace and answer the questions that our culture would ask of us. The second point I would make to you tonight is that if we're going to be a people who are engaged in kingdom work in this culture, we must also be able to understand the question that is being asked. Not only do we need to be ready to have our faith challenged tonight, but we also must be a people who are willing to understand what it is that's being asked of us. It goes beyond intellect. I don't want you to be confused about that tonight. This month, as you carry on this business of the just say yes, there's going to be a point at which I'm sure you're going to knock on a door of someone that you don't know. And you're going to invite them to church. You're going to invite them to Christ. You're not going to know that person's religion when you knock on their door. You're not going to know what the kind of day they're having, whether it's a good day or a bad day, how many kids they have, whether they have pain in their back or their shoulder or their neck, whether they're going to have a job, what their income is, or what kind of response you may even receive from them. But Paul demonstrated something here that you and I need to learn about in 2018. When he walked through the streets of Athens, are you ready? He took notice of what was going on. He looked around him and he recognized what was going on. Now, I'm not suggesting tonight that you and I need to go to the most sinful places that we can imagine and use it as an opportunity to claim it as spiritual understanding. That is dangerous. What I'm suggesting to you is that whether you address people at Harvard University or the man in country club estates or the man that is in the doorway of his house, you must be sensitive to the question that may be on his mind. And it's different for all of us. You want to win your friends to Christ, you have to know what your entry point is. You have to know what is on their mind. One small illustration. Recently, I had an opportunity to sit down with a lady in the cancer center in Sedalia. And her prognosis was imminent death, yet longing to prolong her days, she had settled on a course of treatment. Somewhere along the way in our discussion, she was hooked up with one of our church members. They suggested I sit down with her. I did that. And when I sat down, the natural inclination in that sitting is to presume that life is about over and to ram the gospel down their throat. But instead, I did something different this time around. You know what it was? I listened. Instead of running into the cancer center and saying, you need to get saved, you need to be sanctified or french fried, I said, tell me a little bit about yourself. Beloved, if you will listen to people, you will learn. You will understand them. She told me quickly that into our visit of her fears of death, she had some deep questions. And as I began to show her the answers to those questions, as I saw them through scripture, suddenly she was overwhelmed. And I'm happy to report that the gospel was in her heart. She accepted Christ. <laughs> Beloved, if you're going to be a missionary in 2018, you have to find an entry point. You can't just barrage or ram one in there. You have to know the question that is being asked and be, and be prepared to give an answer for that question. 
Number one, we not only have to be prepared to have our faith questioned, but we have to be a people, number two, who are willing to understand what's going on around us. When we knock on that door to look around, to take a cursory glance of the room, it may be something as simple as a football jersey hanging on a wall. It may be something as, 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 as deep as a book you see on a shelf, but you have to find that entrance point. You have to find that thing that is on their mind, that is weighing heavily upon them. and Find that entrance point, that connection point. As Paul heard their questions, he found his entry point. Apparently on this day, what was on their mind was, are you ready, creation? how the world came into existence. And so he began to tell them God's redemptive story. But are you ready? He didn't begin with Jesus coming to the earth. He began with God in creation. He saw that their questions were about how the world had come into existence. And he showed them in this moment the necessity of God in creation, of a God in the world. And in verse 24, he told them that he wanted to proclaim to them that God, the God who had made all things in heaven and earth and put them together. In verse 25, he told them that that God, the God he had come to proclaim, held everything together and sustained it by his power. In verse 26, he told them that they were all brothers and sisters because they had all descended from one man created by this God. Verse 27, he pointed out their need to seek after this God. In verse 29, he told them that this God was not represented in idols that were made with natural resources like gold and silver. And then he called them to repentance in verse 30. And he told them that God would not accept their ignorance any longer, but rather a time had come for all to repent and to believe. And in verse 31, he told them the necessity of making this decision now, for there was an appointed judgment. And that judgment would come through Jesus, whom God the Father had raised from the dead. In short, God had a, Paul had a comprehensive statement of faith from creation all the way to the redemptive work of Christ and he found his entry point and he began to lay out like a great lawyer his case. The question on your mind, Athenians, is how this world came into existence. I want to tell you about that. And as he told them about that, he told them about the maker of heaven and earth who had come and lived with them and died their death on the cross of Calvary. Point number three tonight. If you're going to be a missionary in 2018, which all of us are called to be, you must understand deeply and personally the work of God in Christ Jesus. You cannot give away what you do not have. I am convinced that the reason our churches are less and less evangelistic today is because we are more and more gospel ignorant. So many believers do not really understand what God has done for them. I'm not talking about being able to simply tell the Sunday school story. I'm talking about understanding and challenging ourselves through study until we know our faith better than anything else in the world. Knowing our faith better than anything else in the world. The Apostle Paul in this moment could clearly articulate who it was whom he'd believed in. And listen... He didn't do it because he'd gone to a seminary class. He did it because of a deep, abiding relationship with Christ. And it just naturally poured out of him. Naturally. Seven more pages and I'm done tonight. Um, one quick story. And this one's not a very good one on me. <laughs> Several years ago, we went to India on that particular trip and had the opportunity to go to 
heavily persecuted place in the world and, um, um, you know, give all these speeches before you go. Don't bring your Bibles. Don't leave them in your luggage because your luggage will be uh, searched and all this stuff, you know, you know, and we're going through all this and whatever you do, don't say things like mission trip. Don't say things like Christian and pastor and all that stuff, you know, make sure that you are generic in your conversation uh, when we're in certain places and, you know, all these protocols. And we come down the first morning there, and we come down out of the hotel room, and um, we make our way to the restaurant to eat breakfast. And uh, as I was walking down the stairs, I don't even know why this song came to my mind, but I just started singing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And I sang it all the way down to the restaurant. And I started ordering my food, and I just kind of kept singing it to myself. Nobody else was there. And I thought, I don't know what I thought. It just kind of happened. Pastor Tim knows I just sing all the time. And then all of a sudden, about five minutes into it, Kenny Qualls shows up for breakfast. And we're sitting there, and he has a weird look on his face. And he didn't say a word, but suddenly it dawned on me. I'm not supposed to be saying this. This is a dangerous part of the world. I could be endangering the very people I came to minister to. Beloved, I sang that morning because I sing every morning. (laughs) Whether it's in the shower or on the couch. Heck, Dr. Loggins comes down to my office three times a day for a concert, right? I mean, it just was natural. The Apostle Paul didn't have to conjure up his speech that day. It just outflowed from him because of a deep, abiding, personal relationship. I'm almost done. One thing that we can miss in the story, and perhaps it's the most important. I want you to look back with me at verse number 14. Paul is waiting upon the arrival of Silas and Timothy in Athens. And while he's waiting, Luke writes this line. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 15, so. His spirit was provoked. Then Luke says, so. That's an action statement. Because of something that stirred inside of him, he did something. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Paul, the missionary of Mars Hill, are you ready? Did not begin by going to the Oropagus. He was a missionary before he ever got there. Point number four tonight, and I'll be done. If you want to be a missionary in 2018, if you want to be a kingdom worker, if you want to make a difference in the kingdom of God, you must be compassionate for the spiritually dead and willing to go wherever they may happen to be. You have to be compassionate for the spiritually dead and be willing to go wherever you might find them. Paul could have said in that moment, you know, I'm going to take a couple days vacation. It's been a long journey to get here. He's only been chased out of a couple of towns and his life threatened and a bribe offered for his safety. I'm going to take a few days of vacation and rest while I wait on my friends. But he didn't do that. When he looked out over the city, his heart was broken. He saw the idols and he knew that they were killing the people. 
He didn't see the idols as vain institutions. He saw them as death traps. When he looked out over the city, his heart was broken. Let me ask you this evening, are you broken for Sedalia, Missouri? It's wonderful that so many are willing to be a part of just say yes, or they're willing to be a part of um, going and prayer walking and all these other things. But are we really broken for Sedalia? I have to say to you that most of the time we are blind to what's going on around us. But beloved, you will never be God's missionary in another culture until you are God's missionary in the culture you're in right now. I'm convinced this evening that the most important verse in the story, for God can do a whole lot with a broken soul. It's the most important verses that Paul was broken and provoked in his spirit. And that brokenness drove him to do something. You might have the intellect of Dawkins, the basketball skills of LeBron James, John Madrid, the looks of Channing Tatum, Dr. Loggins, and the personality of Conan O'Brien, Tim Raymer. But if you aren't broken for the lost, then you'll never be God's missionary in your city. That brokenness led him to go. I like how Luke says he went to the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplaces every day with those, I like this line, who happened to be there. (laughs) Whoever was there. He went to those who professed religion, who might want to have a discussion. He went to those in the marketplace. He didn't know who would be there. So he talked with, Luke says, whoever happened to be there. You don't know who you're going to meet this week at the pharmacy at Duke Manufacturing, at a prayer walking event. You don't know who you're going to meet at your job, at your school, but you won't meet anyone until you go with an intentional desire to share with them the message of Christ. Let me conclude this evening by simply saying this. Cornerstone Baptist Church, our world desperately needs you. Our culture needs you. I don't care whether there's 50 or 60 here on a Sunday night or 500 on a Sunday morning. God can do much with just a little bit. We need God to start raising up some more pastors. We need him to raise up men who are willing to plant churches across the globe. We need God to raise up missionaries, yes. But we also need God to put a burden on the hearts of nurses and educators and businessmen and women who are willing to take whatever location and setting God puts them in and see it as their personal mission field. This morning, the greatest blessing from my message was that after it was over with, and you said that was the greatest blessing for us as well, I was out in the atrium, and I was having a discussion with one of our church members who serves on an important board in our community who's going through some difficult decisions, and those things will be made light in the next couple of days through the newspaper and all of those things. And I was sharing with him that I had been praying for him over the last couple of days, knowing what was going on, and he said that he had been asked to consider becoming the new chairman of this particular community board. And I said, what do you think about that? And he said, well, when you're young, you believe you ought to be the chairman of everything because that makes it all work better, right? When you're old, your zeal has somewhat been frozen. So uh, I, I don't know that I'm as excited about that. And I said, yeah, but it seems like there's a lot of division in this particular circumstance. And he said, that's correct. And I said, brother, they need you. And he said, well, I know that the only thing that brings us together, are you ready? And this is not coming from a preacher. This is just a lay person, right? Because you guys have much great wisdom, much more than preachers. 
Listen, with my degree, I can be a preacher or a custodian. And uh, some days, I'm not sure which of the two I've signed up to be. But anyway, I said to him, what are you going to do? And he said, I know that the only thing that brings people together is the love of Jesus Christ. So Friday, I went and delivered donuts. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to take some more donuts to the workers and try to satisfy some weary souls. Beloved, you don't have to wait till it's the right season in life to be a kingdom advancer, a kingdom worker, a missionary, whatever terminology you want to put on it. God has given every person in this room a great mission field, whether it be your family, your neighborhood, your city. He's given each and every one of us a great mission field. He's only asking for us to respond. But rather than lying to you this evening and saying it's going to be an easy road, I want to say to you again, if you're going to do this, if you're going to answer God's call and model the character and ministry of the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill, you should, number one, expect your faith to be questioned. Number two, you need to understand the questions that will be asked. Number three, you need to study the scriptures and know your faith more than anything else. And number four, you must be broken and willing to go in the first place. By the way, as a side note, success will not be measured by the number of people you lead to Christ. Verses 32 and 34 showed, or 32 to 34 showed a lot of different responses. Some mocked, others asked to hear more, and a few, we only have two listed, a very few believed. <laughs> Some mocked, many mocked, others asked to hear more, and a few, very few, actually believed. The invitation tonight would be simple. First of all, we need to be a people who are willing to get on our knees in prayer, asking for God's strength, uh, not only in the coming days, but in our entire existence. Whatever days God has given to us, we need to get on our knees tonight and ask God to give us strength, courage, courageousness, the ability to do what he's called us to do. Second, we need to be asking God to help us to be listeners of people, to understand what we're dealing with. Third, we need to be a people who are committed to study. And fourth, we need to be a people who ask God to break us and give us hearts of compassion and sensitivity to the lostness that is around us. That is the invitation I offer to you tonight. Every head bowed, I'm going to ask our musicians to come up and just play. We don't even need uh, song sung. Just with every head bowed, I call you to those four things tonight. To be on our knees in prayer. I know the hour is late. We're three minutes over. But I believe God wants to do business in our place. At least he wants to do business in my own life. Number one, I call you tonight to be on our knees praying. Asking for God to give us the strength, the boldness, the courage to do what he's called us to do. Each and every one of us in this room, each and every one of you has been called to touch a life. To share the gospel. Second, tonight, we need to ask God to help us to be better at listening, to hearing what our problems are. Third, we need to ask God to help us be committed to studying, or we need to commit ourselves to God tonight to study. Try reading our Bible every day for every one minute we spend on Instagram or Facebook or watching TV. Duplicate every minute of social media for a minute of reading Scripture so that our faith is known better than anything else. And fourth tonight, our invitation is that we need to ask God to break us and give us a heart for our community. Let's do that now.
in the solemnness of this moment with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to listen to a quick story. I want you to ask yourself if this would be you before the Lord. In 1904, there was a man by the name of William Borden. He graduated from a Chicago high school. He was heir to the Borden family fortune. He was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave him, this 16-year-old Borden, a trip around the world. He could see everything. So the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. He felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that William or Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. He had so many better opportunities, so much more to offer the world. In his response to his friend, he just simply opened his Bible and he wrote on the front page two words, no reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University a year later in 1905, trying to look like just one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something that was unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually than any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had already done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and to find in him strength like that of a solid as a rock, just because of this settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry into his personal journey that defined what his classmates were seeing on him. That entry said, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. Borden's first disappointment at Yale came when the university president spoke at the convocation about students needing to have a fixed purpose. After that speech, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. Surveying the Yale faculty and much of the student body, Borden lamented that he saw at the end end result of an empty humanistic philosophy, moral weakness, and sin-ruined lives. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. It was well on the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. Cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure that it must have originated with Bill. He had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth. At the time we spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture, Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful, and he would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim that promise with great assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden made it a habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized the Bible study groups and divided up into classes of 300 or more, each man interested taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached The names were gone over one by one, and the question was asked, who will take this person? When it came to someone thought to be a hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted that responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put me down for him. 
Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and disabled. He rescued drunks from the street of New Haven to try to rehabilitate them. He founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of Bill Borden's friends wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant in which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people of China. Once he fixed his eyes on the goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service as well. And one of them said to him, he said of him, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known. And he put backbone in the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him. And I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale, and he served as president of the Honor Society at Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduating from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. And it was reported that in his Bible, Bill Borden wrote after graduation, under that first line, no uh, no, uh, no, uh, under that first line of no, uh, why did my mind go blank? Reserves. Under that first line of no reserves, he wrote a second line no retreats. Borden then went on to graduate from Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed to China to do what God had called him to do because he was hoping to work with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis and within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death was cabled back to the United States, the story was carried by nearly every major newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Mary Taylor in her introduction to his biography. Borden's Bible was mailed back to his family. First line, he said no reserves. Second line, no retreats. But right before his death, he wrote a third, no regrets. Father, make us a people who would model the Apostle Paul as a missionary of Mars Hill. So broken over the lostness of our culture that we'd give heaven and earth away. But to see them come into a new, deep, abiding relationship through the work of Christ Jesus. May we be a people committed to the cause, not for fame, fortune, but for the glory, the renown, and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray, amen.